0: Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we stand here as um, people that are in need of your grace to be brought into your family. And because of that, it gives us a humility that recognizes that your family is made up of those who are undeserving and are broken and sinful people running away from you, that you pursue and that you break the hostility between your holiness and our sin. And so, Lord, that creates in us hearts that break down the wall of hostility that exists between us and others, whether it be in personal relationships, that be in communities, that be across economic, racial, uh, across all uh, barriers that which divide. But Lord, we recognize that this is something that comes from your spirit, but just as you have decided to do through moving your church around the world, you have decided to build your church and to build your kingdom through us, through our action, through our activity. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us Clarity as we conclude this series on justice and reconciliation about that which what you would have us do as a community, yes, but as individuals, as families, as couples, as friend groups, that we would continue to see a unity in diversity in this room, in this neighborhood, in this city, and in your church around the world. That people may look at this body and look at your collected body in the global church and say, there is a new thing going on in the church of Jesus Christ that unites former enemies, that unites those who have nothing in common except for the blood of Christ, which washes us all clean and now gives us a common father. So therefore, we have a deep family bond, a deep family tie. or We want that to be true more of us now uh, here in this place. And we want to be a part of building that great multitude that stands around your throne of a multi-ethnic family, celebrating our Father, who has put his image in all of us and formed us together as one new humanity. Lord, we need your spirit to do that. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be working right now in this time and that we would be sensitive to what your spirit is doing and of what from your word we can take and apply to our lives. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are finishing our series, which we've been doing a mini-series on uh, a spiritual formation series on justice and reconciliation. And our goal here in this series is to come around this topic that is racial reconciliation in our city, in our time, which right now is a difficult topic to wade through. And we wanted to take it out of a level of political identity politics or social media uh, outrage culture, and take it to scripture, and say, where is God's heart in this conversation? Where is God's desire to be a part of reconciling reconciling peoples and reconciling a unified family of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, as we talk about in Revelation 5?
1: And I've been really grateful.
0: I've gotten a lot of feedback from this series. From some of you, this series has been really eye-opening. It's been really uh, energizing. For others of you, this has been very difficult and challenging and even triggering, and I recognize that as well. Ultimately, again, our goal is that we would be aligning our church to the heartbeat of our Father, which is to make a unified people of those who are formerly enemies, those who are formerly have nothing in common, but now have the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ, as their common new identity. It doesn't uh, relativize away our distinction, our diversity, our gifts, our culture, our backgrounds, the beauty of what God made us. I mean, he made us fearfully and wonderfully and beautifully, and as he makes us different and he brings us together, we now show the fullness of what it is to be the picture of God. And so we've done that in this series by talking about in the first week about how the gospel that reconciles God and man is the same gospel that that goes horizontally out, like the cross is vertical and horizontal. It pushes us out to be pursuing relationship with those who are on the other side of the wall of hostility. And while there's a lot of different walls of hostility you could look at in the lens of our country and our time and our city, that race we have to admit right now is one that seems to be not being torn down, but rather being built stronger and being fortified up. And then we talked about just why that is, the history of our city, the history of our country, where we start, have started to uh, see that over the past 400 years, why there is the tension that exists today and why it's not just as easy as, uh, as ending uh, old institutions of the past, but they're very much so, it, it still extends an insidious and an implicit Uh, divisions and and inequalities in our world, in our city. And then Tayshawn last week just brought this idea to our hearts where rather than coming to this issue first with anger, how do we stop and look at others and be moved to love? And we want to finish this series by simply having the conversation of like, okay, if all this is true, and if you have not been here for the series, I very much so ask you to go back and listen to previous sermons. They very much so build to this one. But we want to just ask the question, okay, in light of, of... the problem that we see, but yet the call to be unified across racial and economic and all sorts of lines that divide us. What do we do? Because a lot of times this conversation is being had everywhere, but there's no emphasis on like, okay, now what do I do? It's just the sense of like, okay, it's so completely hopeless, but yet I have no ability to move forward. And so I start to either feel powerless or maybe like the big thing that people tell you to do is just like, well, feel guilty. And like, it's just like the sense of like, okay, just particularly as uh, someone of majority culture, like, okay, I can repent, I can feel guilty, but like, I, I want to actually be a part of now building that unified temple of God that you see in Ephesians 2 of breaking down walls of hostility. And I want to know what can I actively participate in doing? Because otherwise that powerless, that sense of guilt just like leads to what I, I see a lot, which is like dividing the gospel from a social justice ethic and saying that, hey, there's the gospel of Jesus that saves people from sins, but it doesn't extend to the same thing of making equal and righteous and just communities in our city and in our nation. The problem is is that Jesus never did that. In fact, that's where I want to start is just based off our text today is Luke 4, uh, verse 14 through 21. If you turn there, it's on page 859 in the Black Bibles. I'll read it here in a moment. As you're turning there, I want you to make note that this is Jesus' beginning to his public ministry. Up to this point in the book of Luke, you've gotten the birth of Jesus. I mean, the most popular Christmas time read is like Luke 2 because it's like the most classic, you know, shepherds and wise men and all this stuff that we love. Actually, wise men are Matthew, but still, you get the shepherds, the angels, all that stuff. You get the birth of Jesus. You get the boyhood of Jesus. You get John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. You get the, tempt- uh, the genealogy of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And now, after all of that set up, Luke is going to have Jesus come forward and speak his first public uh, sermon, or at least what he's going to record the first recorded public sermon uh, to his hometown of Nazareth. And whatever somebody says first, or what Luke is going to present Jesus saying first, is a big deal. Because whatever begins a book, the first line of a book, is going to set the tone for what the rest of the story is going to be about. The first scene of a film often is a microcosm of what the entire film is about. The first track on an album, back when people made albums rather than just rele- releasing individual songs, you know, just to stay at the top of Spotify, but when you actually made albums, the song that which kicked off the album meant something. It was meant to set the tone for what you'd be hearing in the next 15 to 18 tracks. And so likewise, this is a big deal of, Jesus, or of Luke saying, hey, here's what I want to set off the tone for Jesus' ministry. I want him to start out with him just saying, hey, what is he about? What is his manifesto? What is uh, his mission that he's putting forward? And if I were just to ask you, like, what, what do you think that would be? Some of you might say, like, I don't know, maybe it would be like you know, one of his most famous teachings, like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or somebody else would say, like, no, like clearly it would be like a proclamation of salvation on the cross. It'd be like, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Or you'd be like, no, like Jesus first would come to like set up what he came to propose. And he'd be like, hey, I've come to take down the powers of Satan and the enemy that has ruled over this world since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. And I actually have to admit, I'm kind of surprised that I look and think of the very first words of Jesus, the very first public sermon that he lays out in the book of Luke as what we pick up in 4.14. Read with me. And Jesus returned in power. This is after his temptation, after now he's prepared to, be, uh, to minister to the world uh, by his Father and the Holy Spirit. He returned uh, in power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went, uh, a report about him went throughout the surrounding country And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Uh, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, Ultimately, Jesus comes in and what's his inaugural teaching? He says, hey, you want to know my manifesto? You want to know what I'm primarily about? I'm about bringing good news and a kingdom that's going to bless the poor. It's going to bring in the marginalized. It's going to uh, release captives. It's going to heal those who have been blind. And of course, there's a way to look at this in a very much so a spiritualized way that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to take like remove the blinding of people's eyes so that they might see the Father and know the gospel and know that they've been reconciled, not by their own action, but because of my action and my, uh, my sacrifice on the cross. So now that people are coming into the family, not because they're good, but because they are in my righteousness. And he can set captives free. He's going to set people free from demonic oppression and oppression of Satan. But at the same time, what Jesus then does is he steps out and has a real tangible like, executing of these events. And you see it in Matthew 8, uh, chapters 8 and 9. And you don't have to turn there. Let me just walk through. I mean, with Jesus, after he says these things, what he then walks out in Matthew 8 and 9, he does this. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. A person with leprosy would be a social outcast. They would not be able to even worship with their community. And so he heals him. He restores him into relationship now and allows him to be a part of this people again. In 5-13, Jesus marvels at a Gentile's faith who is a person of another race, those, uh, uh, the race that was seen as less than than the Jews. And he proclaims the spiritual quality of someone of a different race, something that was unheard of in the Jewish way of thinking. 14 through 17, he heals people and sets them free from demonic oppression, as we've said, that fulfills Isaiah 53. In 28 through 34, he casts demons out of men living in a graveyard, apart from society. Again, they're on the outskirts because they're filled with demons. They're not able to be a part of the community. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, he heals a paralytic man and forgives his sins. People with disabilities... Or again, seen as those cursed by God, because clearly it was their sin or their family's sin that would cause them to now have these disabilities. And Jesus says, "Not only do I forgive you of for your sins, I remove that which people seem that uh, seem to say you are now a second-class citizen for, and I restore you back into your community." In verse uh, chapter nine, verses nine through thirteen, Jesus calls Matthew the writer of of this account in Matthew's eight and nine who is a tax collector, a second class citizen, therefore, to be his disciple. And then he goes and eats and reclines at table. I mean, this is like going to saying, like, he goes and has a good time with Matthew and a group of his friends, which are described as sinners and tax collectors. And then 18 through 22, Jesus heals a woman who's been, had a bleeding condition. She was considered unclean, again, unable to be in the community of her, a worshiping community because of her uncleanliness, and now restores her to relationship. That Jesus says, hey, yes, I've come to set people free from the oppression of Satan. I've come to bring people into my family and awaken spiritually blind eyes. But you know what I've also come to do? I've come to actual, open actual eyes. I've come to set people actually free. I've come to bring justice into this reality right here and right now. I don't divide a gospel of saving people's souls And then creating just communities for people. These are very much so one kingdom for me. Why does Jesus do this? He says at the beginning, or he quotes from Isaiah at the beginning of the text The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have been anointed to do these things. Who gets anointed? In the Bible, it's two people kings and priests. What do they get anointed for? to represent God and show everyone this is what God is like. When he's filled with his spirit, he says, let me show you what God's like. I take people who are on the margins and I bring them in. I create justice. I create equality. I create a situation where all people are flourishing so that when people look at what I'm doing, they say, that's what God looks like. This wasn't just Jesus' MO. This was reflective of what the Jewish people were called to do in the Old Testament. we I mean, going through the book of Exodus, and in Exodus, we're going to be jumping back into it next week. We're getting into the section of the law, and it's God's teaching of a, of a people. Hey, here's how I want you to display who I am to the world by living in such a way that is, is living my kingdom justice, my kingdom ethic. And he gives them all throughout it, all different kinds of laws, but a lot of them have, relate to like how you relate to the least of these, how you relate to the the widow, how do you relate to the foreigner, how do you relate to those who are outside of the society. He says, I want you to regularly be a people that has a just and generous and joyful bringing of the outsider in. Why? Because one, it's the way I've designed you to be. When you all come together in unity, you are going to not only display my glory, you're going to live in such a way that this is how the world and all things good will flourish. But then also he says, yeah, you're going to display what I'm like to the world. People are going to look at your community, of you who bring outside, bring those who are divided from you in, and say, that's how God must look like. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, I'm building a kingdom where I'm bringing people in, in this relationship in real, tangible, relational ways. So that when people read Matthew 8 and 9, They would say, yeah, that's what God looks like. And then he says, hey, this is for us all now to step into. Again, our spiritual uh, formation paradigm that we say over and over again of practicing the way of Jesus. Being with Jesus, abiding with him, becoming like him, being transformed internally. And then learning to do what he did. Because again, Jesus seems to think that this is something that we should all be about. That's why when the religious rulers around Jesus start to get angry with him, because they're like, hey, if you're really from God, you wouldn't be spending time with all these people. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are they? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He said, you're tithing off your spice rack. Congratulations. But you're neglecting justice, mercy, faithfulness. These are the things that weigh more. You should do those things. Yeah, great. Give to God what it is. That's a good thing. Submit your hearts. Live a religious life. Live a life that is uh, continually aligning yourself to the heartbeat of God. But that can't be separated from living a life of justice towards your brothers and sisters. And so... What is the point in all of this? Is saying that if we are going to be a community of God, or a community of Jesus, a community of the gospel, then yes, we are going to preach the gospel that people can now come before God and have their sins washed away clean through the blood of Jesus, their past, present, and future sins done away with on a cross. Yes and amen. And we are going to be a people that fights for justice and reconciliation in our neighborhood and in our community so that people would look at this church and we would increasingly be a unified body with diverse expressions of the image of God and humanity. And people would say, that's what God must look like. And so it brings us back to the question, what do we do? Because our pastoral team met this week. We meet, we meet each week to talk about sermons, talk about the text, talk about how we're going to be uh, working through it across our congregations. And as we did, we made one thing really clear. We wanted to give really pragmatic and really tangible opportunities for you in this room to say, I can do that. I can step forward into that. Because sometimes you have your heart moved by looking into injustice and what's going on in, in, in the world, and you can just be at that point where, like, man, I want to, like, you, you have this desire. I want to do something. I want to change it all. I want to make a big splash. I want to, like, bring the system of injustice to its knees while I do punk rock Jesus' hands over its grave. And while that's good and right and amen, here's the reality. None of us are in the position to do that. But here's the good news. That Jesus says, hey, my kingdom, it comes in, like, mustard seeds. It comes in little, insignificant people that don't have the ability to bring the system down to its knees, but have the ability to show up day after day and live intentional lives of justice and reconciliation that grows into a kingdom that sprouts like an oaks of righteousness. And so, what I want to walk through uh, with you is, again, very practical, and workable uh, ways that we can move forward, both as a community and as individuals. And I'm actually borrowing a lot of this, uh, borrowing this entire framework uh, from Jamar Tisby, who writes the book The Color of Compromise. And at the end of the book, he he, uh, lays out what he calls the arc of racial justice. And that arc is uh, an acrostic. It stands uh, for the A, standing for awareness, R, standing for relationship, and C, standing for commitment. And so that's my my formula or my... uh, My structure for this day is just walking through awareness, relationship, commitment, and how do you step into all those things to pursue lives of justice and reconciliation. So first, awareness. This is a lot of what this series has been for us, is try to create a stronger sense of awareness of how there very much so still is racial inequality in our city, in our neighborhood, and in our country. And some of us are maybe just arriving here, or maybe some of you need to stay here for a while, of being able to increase awareness. Here's why. We want to be students of history when it comes to the problems that we're experiencing right now because none of the problems we're experiencing right now are birthed out of situations that have happened in the last five years. IPS, being mainly segregated and failing schools, has a history. We tried to track through some of that a couple of weeks ago, but really there's way too much that we could put in in this time. Having a... Uh, uh, generational poverty, there we go, and the lack of ownership in African-American communities has a history. Largely disproportionate rates of African-Americans in prison has a history. Churches being largely divided on Sunday morning has a long history. If we enter into it without first examining how we've got here, we're trying to solve things without first recognizing even having a common language of, of where did the problems come from and how do we move forward together to, to go in the other direction. We need to take a study of the context of what the direction is that we've been going that's, that's gotten us to arrive here. And so ways that we're encouraging people to step into this is by using the resources that are available to you, such as watching documentaries. We're asking all of our missional community uh, to go through Crispus Attucks, a school that opened a city, which is a, PBS, a local PBS documentary. that is very helpful in walking through um, just how Crispus Attucks, that school specifically, plays a big part in just the racial uh, tensions of our city today. Uh, both it had a pl- positive role, and then it also... Uh, is just markings of a lot of uh, things that were uh, done in the name of injustice. And it's really helpful to know that history still stands, of course, just, in the, just outside of the IUPUI's campus. Or uh, I've not personally uh, watched, so I can't personally recommend, but I've, this, just this series, I've had a lot of people of you come to say, like, hey, uh, 13th on Netflix has been a really challenging documentary. Again, I can't personally recommend it, but um, those have, there have been those of you who have recommended that to me. It looks like maybe reading books... From a, perspective, from a different racial perspective of American history. So again, I just mentioned Color of Compromise from Jamar Tisby. There's tons of books that we've actually listed out in a resource uh, guide that is online. If you go to so many.com, go to the current series and download the Spiritual Formation Guide, you're going to find about 10 books, but I didn't want to give you 10 books. I'll just say, this is a good one to start with if you're wanting to just be like, man, what's a book I can step into? Color of Compromise, Jamar Tisby, really helpful historical perspective on how race is continuing to affect our nation from its historical roots. It looks like listening to podcasts, uh, Truth's Table, and Pass the Mic are both examples of podcasts that are hosted by people of color that are giving a different perspective into this issue. You can start to hear from and learn from those who just are going to see from a different angle and see from a different background. You can uh, diversify your social media feeds with Christians of color, with people who are, again, going to speak into issues from a different angle. Maybe even people who are just like saying, hey, this is just a different cultural commentator. Maybe they're Christian, maybe they're not. It doesn't matter. That they're going to give you a view and a perspective that's going to challenge yours. It's going to either sharpen where you're at or it's going to make you see something that you hadn't before. And all that is, again, to give us a context, give us a historical way to increase our awareness, increase our common language of the problems. But if awareness just stays there, it just is like heady in the clouds and ethereal. I'm aware and maybe I can spout some stuff off that I'm, I'm learning. But, it, but if it doesn't transfer into the next part of the arc, which is relationship, then it does no good. Ultimately, relationship is where I look at individual people or families or backgrounds and I say, hey, I care about this issue. Yes, because I'm learning about injustice and because I want to be a person who reflects God's. Uh, image to the world by saying God's about destroying injustice, but he's also about bringing people in. Jesus doesn't just show up and say, I'm going to take down these systems. He also comes in and says, and I'm sitting down and eating with this group of sinners and tax collectors because I want to know them. Because I want to care for them. Because I want to build a relationship with them. where Where they've been discarded, I want to bring them in. And let's just be realistic. It's really hard to make relationships across racial and economic boundaries. I mean, I live in a neighborhood right now. It's pretty diverse. I have continually developing relationships with our next-door neighbors, who is an African-American family. But if I'm honest, it's a lot easier at the end of a long day to connect with another family down the street because they're close to our age, close to our backgrounds. And it's just Easier to talk about what's in common. And so my wife and I regularly have had to get ahead of our schedule. Look at our week ahead, look at our time and space and say, hey, let's decide now, not by the end of the day and who we just naturally gravitate towards, but like let's decide now, how are we going to intentionally try to have dinner with those who have a different background and perspective than ours? That we could develop over a time A deepening relationship where we really know each other, and we have ability. I have an ability to talk about this background, this perspective, not just from a historical perspective, but through somebody's actual relational lens. Not that they have to be my tour guide for all of culture and everything, but as I grow in relationship, I want to know them. I want to know how they experience, how what their experience has been like living in the same places that I've been living in, and so. One of the beautiful opportunities that we have by being, if you live in this neighborhood or live in the surrounding downtown neighborhoods, is you probably live in an area of somewhat diverse block or a diverse neighborhood. I mean, it's not easy to bridge these relationships, but we actually have the opportunity to look around and say, hey, I'm going to intentionally pursue after relationships with people that I otherwise would not have anything in common with. And yes, it takes intentionality. Yes, it takes probably extra effort. Yes, it takes uh, probably wading through some level of like, okay, we have less in common, so we have to really pursue relationship together. But with that vision in mind of coming together and being unified and being in real relationship with them, I'm more compelled by that. And then some of you are like, I, I truth be told, if I... Just look at my relational context. I'm actually not in that diverse of a block. I'm not in that diverse of a neighborhood. There might be some intentionality that's needed to be in forming diverse relationships just by choosing where you shop, choosing where you work out, choosing what leagues you're a part of, trying to engineer and orchestrate opportunity to express the unity and diversity of our God. And allow organic relationships hopefully to blossom out of those efforts. And so we can have a certain level of awareness that's good, and it moves into relationship that's necessary, but ultimately the last step of commitment I would say is probably the hardest because here's the: uh, it takes intentionality to gain awareness, to, to be a student of history, particularly from a different perspective than you may have come from otherwise. It also takes a level of intentionality to be in relationships. I've already acknowledged that, but it takes a full wrapping all of my life to be a part of building just and reconciled communities when it comes into the commitment level? It looks like not just living, not like just not being racist. I mean, that's a lot of times what we hear. less of times we talk about like, well, hey, like I'm not racist and I'm not like living in an active racist lifestyle. Yes and amen. But are we living in committed ways that are opposing the racial divides and the walls of hostility that are being built up? Are we intentionally being ones who are tearing those down. And so ways to commit with your entire life is one, committing with your discipleship Meaning, means praying regularly for racial divides to go down in your neighborhood and your relationships in this country. We do a lot of good by looking at the personal ways that we relate to people and by looking at the social systemic ways that, that there's been injustice pushed forward. But we are sadly mistaken if we forget that there's very much so a spiritual warfare component to all of this. That racial division has been a stronghold of the evil one for a long time and he doesn't plan on just letting it go easily. That's why every time there seems to be a step forward, there seems to be probably a giant step back because if we're not regularly praying to see the strongholds be loosened, then we'll see little progress. So you can Commit with your discipleship to praying regularly for this. Um, You can commit with your finances. Where your heart is or where your money is, there your heart is also, Jesus says. And so you can donate to organizations who are pursuing racial justice and ministry to racial uh, people of color, uh, such as uh, Tech Young Life, Like a Lion, Exodus Refugee, Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic. These are all opportunities to commit with our resources, and commit with our hearts to be a part of this. Or you can commit with your time, donating, to those, or donating your time and your efforts to those same organizations. It's also an opportunity to build relationships uh, and to increase awareness just by being in those contexts. Huh. It means committing with your influence. Listen after I say this, because listen to what I'm going to say. This means it affects the way that we vote. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you there is a political party that has a corner on the market on this subject. No party is clean when it comes to creating justice and reconciliation. But what I am saying is that there should not be a candidate of any party or any system that can say to their their team, their organizers, or to themselves, the Christians are an easy vote. If I promise them this, they'll be on my side. Rather, we should be people that are pressing into local candidates, national candidates, and asking questions such as, hey, where do you stand on these issues of racial reconciliation? Where do you stand on trying to defend the rights of those who are are marginalized in our our society right now? Where do you stand on these social economic issues and how are you trying to actually fight for these? Like, what is your actual plan for these things? Because if there is a candidate that wants the Christian vote, they should not just have to have one side or the other of the Christian ethic. We should demand and ask that we see a consistent Christian ethic from top to bottom. Not that we're going to find our savior in a political candidate. And so yes, there very much so will have to be a sense of like, okay, how do I work through and try to wade through who I think is going to bring the most amount of flourishing through their candidacy or through through their holding of office but we still should be asking the question, pressing in and saying, hey, we're not just satisfied with one side or the other. We want to know, what are you doing on these moral issues? What are you doing on this area of justice and reconciliation? You can pursue that locally. So many times that gets pressed into a a national conversation when so much more work is done on the local local level. You can have your voice be heard in neighborhood associations and in school administrations, school boards. Holding these, uh, holding these organizations accountable to ways that they are either promoting or, uh, or breaking up unfair and discriminatory practices in the, the neighborhood or the school. You can write letters, attend meetings. You can speak out on injustice on social media. Now here's the thing to be wary of too, or wary of. This war is not with flesh and blood. It's with the powers that divide. And so I don't, if I'm going to use my voice, and I think it's not a bad thing to use the platform that you have to say, hey, I'm going to talk about things that I'm learning. I'm going to talk about things that are really stirring me up. I'm going to talk about ways that I see God's kingdom wanting to break out in this area or in this country. And that's okay to use the platform to share that, but always remembering, hey, I'm doing my best to diffuse a culture of outrage by sharing truth and love. And so even this sermon series has been us as a church saying, like, how can we use our platform to have this conversation? But yet every single sermon we've tried to look up top and bottom and say, hey, are we trying to be inflammatory here? Are we, are we being careless with our wording here? Because ultimately we don't want to create more division with this. We want to create a conversation that feels like, hey, we are saying this truth because we love our community and because we love those who we want to see in our neighborhood in this community. And so when people come in and are going, to, are going to react with bombast backwards in that way, are going to, are going to fire back in the comment section, it means that I am also called to be reconciled to them. I'm called to love and to pursue them. To have that conversation offline if I know them. To pray and bless and care for them. All the while still saying, hey, I want to see the kingdom of God break out in this way. And then, beyond all those things, that's the awareness, the relationship, the commitment. And There's probably many more things that you could press into. I just want to talk about also how we're looking at, to do this as a church. Because we recognize this is an individual issue, but it's also very much so an organizational issue. And so, as a church, how are we continuing to Um, become a community that looks like our neighborhood. Just a few small things that we're doing, we're committed to as a church, to consistently review and re-examine our structural ministry uh, vehicles, might you say, our Sunday mornings, our emissional communities, and how they are either inviting or or disinviting to uh, a diverse population. One way that we just practically did this a little while back that you probably recognized, or you maybe didn't know why we did it, is we greatly extended the time where you passed the piece. And it was just through a conversation we were talking about how, like, yeah, like, I grew up in a time where, like, if you pass the piece, or if you greet somebody, it's like, hey to someone in front, hey to someone in the back, and we're singing. And that's kind of how we typically used to do it. And for a couple reasons, we all of a sudden were, like, conversing with people who said, like, well, yeah, if you go to an African-American church, they usually have an ex- time to have conversation, to to join in relationship, uh, to talk to every single visitor potentially. Maybe talk to every single person in the congregation. And we said, okay, how do we continue to just tweak even in small ways, ways that we're opening up, uh, ways that would feel familiar to someone coming in uh, who's of uh, a different church background. Also, gets me up here later. I get freaked out by the time earlier, and my sermons are a little shorter, a byproduct. But uh, in theory, that's true. But uh, either way, Uh, we're also committed to looking at our missional community model. We love our missional community model. It's been really helpful to build community and to build missional intentionality amongst a lot of our people. But we've recognized that it has, across even congregations that are more diverse than ours in the Soma uh, family of neighborhood churches, not, for whatever reason, uh, not been inviting to people of color to. uh, minorities in our, in our congregation, in our membership. And so I don't think that means that we're necessarily going to shake up our current, current mission communities. What it means is we launch other ones, we might even experiment, hey, what is the structure of them? How do they look? How could there be something that might be more inviting to those who are not currently engaging with them? Again, because we love our ministry practices and principles and vehicles, but we love the vision of a kingdom breaking out in this neighborhood even more. And so it's just an active conversation that we're having. One of the biggest ways that we're trying to continually do this is we think through our leadership at our church and those who are speaking from the pulpit, that it would continually show and exemplify a reconciled and unified people in our neighborhood of different backgrounds and different identities and different uh, ethnicities. So, so meaning that we are coming and there's a reason that, that me and Tayshawn are trying to share more as we preach back and forth, as we have, uh, try to think of diversity in liturgists. That's not just true of uh, racially, it's also true that we have in other seasons had more women doing liturgy and we want to continue to see that be something that happens. So women, if you're a member and you're interested in liturgizing, that's something that we want to continue to see to show that, hey, this is about a whole family coming together to worship God and to empower and to use our gifts. Let me end here. All of these things, probably like just the handful of things that I've tossed out, again, hopefully are are actionable. You can kind of decide, where am I at? Where could I step into those? It's actually not a lack of things to do that I think keeps us stalled out in this conversation. I think it comes from a fear to actually step into the commitment level of this. And fear, there's a lot of fear for a lot of good reason. One, stepping into this conversation or stepping into to, to really pursuing this is going to come with a certain amount of pushback. I mean, even in Galatians, you see that. That's where Peter is eating with the Gentiles, those of a different race, and all of a sudden it says that he pulled back in fear because of the the circumcision party, that was the Jewish people that were saying, hey, no, like you're eating with the Gentiles, but you need to remember, hey, they're still unclean. You need to pull back from that and show that they need to circumcise and they need to take on our ethnic identity in order to be the people of God. And Paul looks at them and says, hey, you're being against the gospel. Because not only do they not have to perform this work, they're saved by Jesus through their faith by his cross. But he didn't come to like, make them all Jews. He came to save them as Gentiles and show the beauty of his family going forward in the Gentile faith. And so it says, though, that Peter himself was afraid. Peter, an apostle, the one who received the dream in Acts that God said, hey, nobody's unclean. I want you to take my gospel to the whole world. That Peter got afraid because he got some pushback and some fear of man. And so it stands to reason that if we step out into this, there's going to be a certain level of feeling like even if we're speaking the truth in love, there is going to be controversy. There's going to be a level of of unreceptivity to the message. I mean, Jesus was pushed back against for this kind of stuff all the time. He's like, if they oppose me, they're going to oppose you. I think another fear, I'll address them here in a second, but let me just get them all on the table. Another fear is... I want to move forward, but ultimately I just have the fear of getting this wrong. I have the fear of being more damaging than helpful. It's a real fear. It's a good fear. But ultimately, Peter got this wrong. The apostles got this wrong. Yes, we want to try to go forward in healthy ways, not creating more damage than good. And there's a lot of ways that we've read about toxic charity, toxic relationships that can can be more damaging than good, but there's also a sense of, like, I want to trust that it is a practice mentality that forms me into the image of Jesus. I grew up with a perfection mentality. If I'm going to do something new, I want to make sure I can perfect it before I go out on a limb and actually do it. If I don't know if I can perfect it, maybe I shouldn't risk it. And I missed out on a lot because now I'm trying to develop in my life right now a practice mentality. If I grow and I stumble forward and I allow the grace of God to, to cover my mistake and also through his spirit to empower even that which I'm doing, which is, is, yes, still needing to be molded, still needing to be formed into his image. But I trust just like he continually formed Peter, he'll continue to form me. And that as I press into this conversation, as I press into these relationships with a learning that comes by doing, with a prayerfulness that I'm filled with the Spirit of God and that He can work powerfully through me, I trust that, that He'll do this. <laughs> Lastly, there can be a sense of uh, a fear that I think is best exhibited by uh, a story that one of our elders' wives told. She said she was at one of our congregations. Uh, she's at our Northwest congregation. She was singing the song, "Let Justice Roll Like a River. And just singing that chorus of like that she wanted justice to continue to roll out in our city. She said she was arrested by the fact all of a sudden, like the spirit's movement in her heart, just saying, hey, you realize when you ask for justice to roll like a river, you're asking for it to get a lot less convenient for you, for your family, for your situation. And we have to admit, one of the honest fears to this conversation is by crying for justice to happen for those who are marginalized means that we're crying for our own situation to become less advantaged. And that's a real fear. It's a real thing to wrestle with. It's a real idol in my heart of what I want for my family, what I want for myself. But I have to continue to hold on to Jesus saying, hey, seek first the kingdom and I'm taking care of you. It's not going to be a cheap trade If you bring the kingdom into this world, life with God and humanity the way that it was meant to be, and yes, you're going to lose a little bit economic or or advantage on the front end, you won't regret it when you see the kingdom come forward in its full force. You're not losing anything on this deal. I mean, ultimately, that's what I look and I see the pushback of potentially like, yeah, having that fear of man, having that real sense of people pushing back on me. And we need to keep before us a vision of the beauty of looking like a diverse picture of unity in our neighborhood so that people would show up and say, that's what God looks like. It means that I keep individual relationships in my mind and say, I'm going to be willing to take a level of pushback for this because I love that person. I love that family. I love that those people in our neighborhood that I want to be in this room worshiping Jesus with us, that we would all come together and say that ultimately We are a new humanity under the blood of Jesus and people say, God's got to look like that. And so I want to have that vision before me. I want to look at my neighbors and be like, I want to be in relationship with you because I know you'll bring more of the image of God into my life and I'll bring more of it to you. We'll sharpen each other and we'll be more like Jesus. This place, kingdom justice, will break out and we will experience the presence of God in each other. And so as I hold that vision. I, real, I realize, OK, there's going to be some pushback. But I can continue to love, to forgive, to press in, to even deal with the, the, the anger, the the inflammatoryness that I bring to the situation. Yes, Yeah, there's going to be some level of disadvantage. But it's not a cheap trade. It's not something I'm going to regret. And so ultimately, if we're looking at doing this in our community, we have to be filled with the Spirit of God. I mean, that's what Jesus opened up by saying. He said, hey, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am anointed to bring justice in the community. And you bringing it in of your own efforts is going to be insufficient. But the good news is, is if you believe in Jesus, if you are redeemed by his cross, then the same power that raises him from the, him from the dead is in you. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit. You are filled with his presence. And the way that we remember that each week is communion. We come forward as believers and we take of the bread, which is the body broken for us, dip it in the cup, which is the blood shed for us, symbolizing the old part of us dying and the new resurrected filled with the Spirit of God part of us moving forward into the city. And so let's come and recognize we desperately need the Spirit of God to be in our midst if we are going to create a community that looks like this. And so in a moment, there'll be stations around the room where if you're a Christian, you can come forward, take the bread, dip in the cup. There'll be a gluten-free station here uh, to my right and your left. Uh, I'll pray and then let us come forward. Father God, I pray for you to um, fill us with your Spirit Fill us with tangible action to bring justice and reconciliation into our city. Lord, allow us not to be ones who say, what do I do? But rather, how does the Spirit of God empower me to do this today, day in, day out, bringing the kingdom in lives the size of mustard seeds that brings forward a renewing of all the earth through everyday activity, through everyday intentional pursuit of bringing a unity in diversity, the image of God, of all of us worshiping here together and showing to a world this is what God looks like. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.